Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and today I'm not in a studio, but tucked up at home on my sofa, or on my kitchen table, actually, respecting the government guidelines around the coronavirus. And whether you're a new listener to the podcast or a regular, it's great to have you with us, and I hope wherever you are, you're keeping safe and well. A quick parish notice before we start. If you like what we do, then please subscribe or follow us, or both, so you'll always know when there's a new episode available. And if you have a minute to spare, please rate us via the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a little review, because it all helps to spread the love. And of course, you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter via the handle at OdooBookOff. Anyway, enough of me blabbing on. It's time to meet my guests, two fabulous writers who'll be battling it out later in the book off when each of them will be pitching a book that they love and think that we should all read. My first guest is an award-winning author who joins us from her home in Scotland. Her books include the powerful memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, and the Costa Award winner, The Hand That First Held Mine. She's just published her eighth novel, Hamnet, which we'll be talking about a little later on. Hello and welcome, Maggie O'Farrell. It's very nice to see you. I want to see you, hear you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely to hear you as well, and I wish we could see each other, but sadly that's not the case. But it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. And my second guest is a New York Times best-selling author who joins us from her home in Atlanta. Her novels include An American Marriage, which not only won the Women's Prize for Fiction last year, but was featured on Oprah's Book Club and Barack Obama's Summer Reading List. A pretty high acclaim. Her fourth novel, Silver Sparrow, has just been published here in the UK, and we welcome to book off Tayari Jones. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. We're international today. We're, we're talking Scotland, England and Atlanta. That's pretty, pretty good going. Shame we can't all be in the same room, though, to share a nice cup of coffee. Um, anyway, many of you will know how this podcast works. I ask my guests to pitch us a book a little later on, not one of their own, a book that they love and they think that we should all read. And each of you is going to get three minutes on the clock to tell us about something. First, though... I'd like to talk about your new novels, both of which I absolutely devoured and have loved and talked about ever since finishing them and I've been telling everyone to get them. Um, so Maggie, if I may start with you, Hamnet, as I said, it's your eighth novel and another foray into historical fiction for you, like The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox. So firstly, tell us why you were drawn to write about Shakespeare's famous son. 
Um, well, I think basically, it, uh, and the short answer would be that I don't think his son is famous enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> I first heard about the existence of the son Hamlet, so Shakespeare's only son, uh, when I was 16. We were studying the play Hamlet at school, and my English teacher mentioned in passing that Shakespeare had had a son called Hamlet who died aged 11, and then he went on about four or five years later to write this play. Um, and of course, in Elizabethan times, the sp- uh, spelling was not as stable as it is now, and so they are actually the same name you know in the Paris records of Stratford Avon they are interchangeable and you know even as a 16 year old you know when I was quite a long way from becoming a mother to be honest um I I was really struck by the parallel the parallel sort of symmetry of these names and it seemed to me that it it was it was it was a huge sign of something I'm not I'm not sure what it was but you know Mm. for a man who has who's left such a so little account of himself Shakespeare is, is a very mysterious figure there are very few documents actually directly relating to him um, so, so his life is this is full of these sort of intriguing voids and uh, sort of big uh, longueurs. But, um, you know, despite that, there is this enormous sign of something that he's telling us. You know, it's not nothing to call your probably your greatest tragedy and your most intriguing antihero after your dead son. It's telling us something. It's speaking volumes to us as, a, as, as, as an audience and as readers. Mm. It's quite amazing, isn't it, that one of the most famous people in the world actually left behind a huge legacy of his work but in terms of his personal life it's as you say it's just not documented really well it's an enormous imbalance because yes we have this incredible output for him but the most the most significant thing for me about that is that he unlike uh, say Marlowe and Johnson who you know playwrights of the same era they made sure that their work was published and put out in the world before they died Shakespeare did not the only reason we have all his plays is because two of his mates who were in the company with him um, after his death went and collected up all his manuscripts and all the papers that he'd used and all the uh, all the kind of working copies that they'd all used in the productions and put them together and made the first folio so he didn't even he didn't even particularly care about preserving his literary legacy (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's horrifying I mean there is there's also never ever no one's ever found his library so you know obviously he had an extensive library um, Mm. of all kinds of different works but no one's ever found it and there is one interesting theory which is that it may have been destroyed in the great fire of London oh yeah Mm. well that's perfectly possible I suppose it Um, would make sense historically it would, or is just yet to be found, and one day someone <laughs> will stumble across it. Wouldn't it be good? It. The other possibility is they used it as fire lighters back in Stratford. <laughs> <laughs> Don't really want to think about that, do you? I know, it's horrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I just want to bring uh, Tayari in here. Are you, are you a, a Shakespeare fan, buff? I think, you know, we all, I think all of us writing in English are on some level in mm. conversation with Shakespeare. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I, I can't claim to be a complete expert, but um, it's inevitable, certainly in, in the UK, you get taught Shakespeare at school and then undoubtedly if you're into drama, if you're into literature, you're going to be performing a Shakespeare play or you're going to see one at some point. So I think he's just sort of or entrenched, he, isn't he? I mean, he's entrenched in the culture. I mean, mm. if you are a kid and you're watching The Lion King, there's Hamlet again. <laughs> or even if you look at this this cable TV show we have here, it's kind of trashy called Empire. It's King. Le- it's modeled on King Lear. So I mean, Shakespeare has changed the way we understand story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, Maggie, you don't actually ever mention him, or certainly you don't t- mention him by name 
in the book, do you? He's no, I I couldn't I <laughs> I couldn't uh, mention him by name in the book. I mean, I did uh, there, uh, when I when I was starting to write the book, I did kind of a couple of times attempt it. <laughs> but you know, but as Tayari says, you know, we all have our own relationship with Shakespeare. We all have a version of him inside our head. Mm. You know, he's in our language, he's in our education. He he completely changed the way we all think about ourselves, and and continues to do so. I think to an extent. Um, but you know, so <laughs> but what would happen is that I'd be sitting at my desk and I'd be. And I'd be just about to type a sentence saying <laughs> William Shakespeare came down the stairs and had his breakfast. And you know, you can't write that without feeling like a total Egypt. You know? <laughs> and so not, not only was it ridiculous because, you know, we, we, he carries such an enormous heft and so much significance to us all. But also, you know, it, 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 it seemed massively presumptuous because then you thought, well, should I call him William? Should I call him <laughs> Will? Yes. And I think, who the hell do I think I am? You know, so, you know, I just thought, no, he has to be, you know, he has to be either the father or the son or the, you know, the glover's son or the tutor. You know, it, and also it made a lot of sense to me in a way um, for him not to be the, the central character in the book. Because, because for me, you know, when I started writing this book, what I really wanted to do um, was to was to give voice to this boy, you know, Hamnet, who I think has been really overlooked by history. You know, I've been reading these kind of 500-page biographies <clears throat> of Shakespeare, and mm. Hamnet maybe gets two mentions if, if he's lucky, and I feel he's been really elided over and sort of forgotten about. So, uh, and so the book in attempt was to kind of to tell the story behind the man, in a, say, in a sense, because for most yeah. of the book, he, 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 of course, is in London, and so I wanted him to be a more peripheral character and for people to kind of open themselves up to an interpretation of the man which isn't the one they think they know. Well, we'll talk more in a moment about him and about uh, his mother, who you portray in the book as well. Um, I just mm. want to take a moment to talk about Silver Sparrow now, Tyari, and um, mm. an American marriage, uh, which many of us will know, which I mentioned won the Women's Prize last year. It came from hearing a couple arguing, I believe. So where did the inspiration for this book come from? Well, Silver Sparrow is the story of the two daughters of James Witherspoon, who is a bigamist. The daughters are the same age. They live across town. Only one daughter is his public daughter that everyone knows about, and the other is his secret daughter. I always start by saying that my father is not a bigamist. But I also say, you know, that I know of, because I think that's one of the questions of the book. You only know what you know. Mm -hmm. But I do have a sister who is about 10 years older than me, and she's my father's daughter and not my mother's daughter. She was born before my parents ever met, so there's no scandal there. But all my life, I felt like I at once had a sister and didn't have a sister. And I wanted to write about that, this question of kin and siblings, and can we, the second generation, heal the hurts that our parents have caused? Mm-hmm. Because you, what I got from from reading the book and what we've talked about before, actually, is how delicate families can be, <laughs> and I think you portray that very, very well. Um, reading it, I was thinking, gosh, you know, there's, there's, it, it's the case of just a few words, or you know, in in a bigger picture, a secret that suddenly unfolds, and that can just crumble the the lives of so many people. Well, and I was also interested, I mean, the idea of the father being a bigamist is extreme and unusual, but actually turns out it's not as unusual as you would think. But this is something we grapple with in our modern society. We speak a lot about blended families, but there are a lot of families that have not blended. I've traveled all over the world 
talking about my work. And everywhere I go, there's someone who had this experience of their father has a different family. Even when I was on the Queen Mary coming to London recently, a woman at a table next to me, she was beautifully dressed, quite elegant. And she said, when I was eight, my parents divorced. My My father remarried, and I felt like I had gone from being a daughter to being a niece. So Mm. this happens to this happens to children all the time. Their fathers move on and have new families. Do you think it's something maybe that isn't as talked about as perhaps other family relationships? It's hardly ever spoken about. It's such a shame that people have a feeling, you know, abandoned by their fathers, and it's. The thing is, we think about custody as parents taking custody of children in a divorce, but also children have custody of parents. Mm. The man can only live in one house. He can only have breakfast at one table. So one set of his children necessarily will know him better, have a relationship with him in a more daily way. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. I hadn't thought of it like that, actually. Um, there's always going to be one side that gets more, I suppose. It, it's unavoidable. It is unavoidable, unavoidable. Par- particularly when you factor the mothers in. I mean, the other mother is his ex-wife. He cannot have that same easy closeness hang out, you know, in the same way as he does with his new wife. Think about it. With his mm. new wife, he's in the blush of new love with the new baby and this ex-wife that's his ex-wife and in many ways his ex-life yeah 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 i want to talk about the characters in these books now and i'll, I'll come on to talk about dana and Cherise, if i may in a moment tiari but back to hamnet not hamlet or hamlet <laughs> uh whichever way you want to say it i guess um he is the main character in the book in a way and he's also the title of your book maggie but mm-hmm. The centre of the story seems to be his mother. Yeah, well, I I mean, during the writing of the book, uh, which I had originally uh, conceived as a book about fathers and sons, you know, as the players, you know, very similar to Tayari's book. It's, you know, Hamlet is also about kin and siblings and and the kind of effect that parents can have on children. But also, Mm. you know, this sort of interrelationship of siblings. Um, So, but... but, Um, so when I began researching it, I planned it as this kind of father and son novel. But actually, while I was reading about their lives, I became sort of really distracted um, and almost hijacked, in a sense, by Hamlet's mother, um, who, who, of course, we all tend to know as Anne Hathaway. Um, but one of the things I found out uh, when I was researching her, because, because, you know, if you think there are a few documents about Shakespeare, there's almost nothing about her at all. <laughs> you know, she... One biographer describes her as this wife-shaped void. You know, there's very, very little we actually know about her. Um, you know, we know she was the daughter of a very sort of wealthy yeoman or a sheep farmer, um, and that she married Shakespeare at 26 and he was 18, and that mm. she was uh, she was about three months pregnant by the time they got married, which in those days was not unusual at all. Um, but you know, I think what shocked me the most is that so many critics and biographers, and also popular culture as well, paint her in such a negative light, you know, as if this kind of void can be filled up with all this criticism and hostility and basically misogyny. You know, she she's always depicted as this kind of 
peasant who tricked this younger man into marriage, you know, and people will make sweeping statements saying, you know, he hated her. He had to go to London to get away from her. Um, you know, and there's, there's no evidence of that at all. I mean, no. maybe he hated her, but it, equally, <laughs> it's very, very possible that he loved her as well. You know, yeah, they had this yeah. fantastic marriage. I mean, you know, there are two things for me that are very significant. At the end of his life, when he retired from the stage, he went back to Stratford to live with her. You know, if you hate your wife, you wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time his career ended, he had... I mean, he was basically a multimillionaire who's very wealthy, and he but he still lived in very, very modest lodgings in London and sent all his money, every penny he earned, back to Stratford to his wife and daughters. And again, that doesn't speak to me of a really regretted, unhappy marriage. So, so in a sense, I became really kind of incensed on her behalf, um, and I decided that I wanted to make her a proper three-dimensional character, no longer a void. And I became interested in the idea that maybe she had had her own sort of brand of creativity, and you know, like him, and also in the idea that... What was it that attracted her to him? Because, you know, Jermaine Greer has written a fantastic book about her called Shakespeare's Wife. And in it, she says, you know, everybody has asked for years and years, why did he marry her? What did he see in her? But she says, what we should be asking is, why did she marry him? And I thought, well, you know, imagine what he must have been like in rural Warwickshire in the 17th century. You know, he must have stuck out like a sore thumb. Sorry, the 16th century. He must have stuck out like a sore thumb. He had this extraordinary mind. He would have been extraordinary at 18. And maybe she saw something in him. Maybe she saw something about him which was different from everybody else. And she makes a great entrance in your book, doesn't she, Maggie? I just think that when we're first introduced to her, um, it's that's one of the bits that really sticks out in the whole of the novel for me. (laughs) Well, it it, it was quite fun... Uh, reinventing her because partly some of my research was sort of library based obviously because you know you could spend your whole life reading about Shakespeare if you wanted to and many people do uh, but also I did quite a lot of practical research particularly for Agnes one of the things I found out was that her father in his will uh, named her as Agnes not Anne uh, and this actually to a novelist uh, was a gift because uh, you mm. know giving her you know, the possibility that we've been calling her by the wrong name all her life because if anyone's going to know her name it's, it's her dad surely and so I, I did think, I, I decided that there were two things in Hamlet, the play, which always have intrigued me, and that's the details of herbology, plant law, and also uh, hawking. Shakespeare uses a lot of uh, metaphors to do with falconry and hawking. So I decided to give these two things to her. So part of my research was actually to go and learn how to fly a falcon. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. It was, yeah, it was really hard work, tough. Um, yeah, it was incredible fun. So I went down to the Scottish borders and I flew several... Uh, falcons and several hawks until I decided on a kestrel which is the most beautiful bird ever it's incredible I decided on a female kestrel they're very very light and totally silent you could stand there with your glove in the middle of a wood and they'll appear from nowhere just silently and land and they're pretty light actually they're about the weight of a kitten there are others which are really heavy I did have Mm. a go on a golden eagle who was terrifying (laughs) also (laughs) really heavy. It was like kind of holding quite a little average sized dog on the outside of your heart. And yeah, I was just, I was actually too scared of him. (laughs) So the Kestrel (laughs) won out. The Kestrel, I thought, I like the Kestrel. Beautiful animals. Anyway, and I also uh, decided to plant, uh, I planted my own Elizabethan medicinal herb garden and I'm not a gardener at all um, (laughs) because I wanted to kind of understand the labour involved because, you know, you read things and it says, you know, they would have used, I don't know, um, comfrey to, ease ease their bones and you think well yeah but how and so I had to grow it from seed and then I dried the leaves and then I learned how I went on a course to learn how you'd actually employ this leaf to ease your arthritis 
Wow, all this stuff you see, we take for granted in reading the reading the book, and we think, oh, you know, you've done all the research here. <laughs> Some of it probably quite enjoyable, admittedly, but still, oh yeah, the, it was quite fun. It was a lot more fun going and flung a kestrel and sitting at your desk. I have to say, <laughs> ever turned your hand to a bit of falconry, Tari? <laughs> Um, no, but I will say <laughs> not when yet. I was writing, not yet. <laughs> when I was writing an American Marriage, I did try to cut down a tree. Oh, did you? Wow. Yeah, it can't with, be done. The- you can't as just a regular person. <laughs> because I wanted to know how difficult it would be for my character. And when I saw how hard it was, it really set my mind at ease for the scene. Because you cannot, if you don't know what you're doing, you cannot chop, you can't chop down a tree. That tree is older than you. It was here before you were born and it will be here when you're gone. <laughs> so you were actually quite relieved then in, in trying it to know that you'd written the right thing. Uh, yes, I, well, it was when I was writing it. I wanted to know, like, how, what am I, mm. what am I doing in this scene? Yeah, no, you can't chop down a You tree. can't do it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All very outdoorsy research here. I like that. Tayari, I, I want to talk about your main characters, but first, just to ask about Silver Sparrow and where that title comes from, if there's something behind that. Well, I had originally wanted to call the book um, The Silver Girl, and... I had to get rid of it because I found out like a really famous author was having a book by the same title and they were afraid that it would eat mine up. And I felt really frustrated. I felt like like Dana in the book, like I had the title, but now some person who outranks me wants the title. So I just have to give it up. And so I was really resentful and I had two weeks to get a new title. And I was asking strangers on the subway. I was saying, hi, you know, I've written this book. It's about these two girls. They have the same father. What do you think the title should be? (laughs) But I kept rereading the book and then I noticed that the hymn, the Baptist hymn, his eye is on the sparrow, comes up in the book three times. And I thought about it because the idea of that hymn is that, you know, God has his eye on the smallest of us, the sparrow. And then, you know, there is in the New Testament about the least of these, what you have done unto the least of these, you have done unto me. And I thought about Dana, and she is the least of these, but she is also the silver one as well. So the title just became clear to me that it should be Silver Sparrow. And once I chose it, I was so grateful because so many people have written to me to say, I have, I am a Silver Sparrow daughter or I am a Silver Sparrow son. Mm. Because there is no real dignified way to speak about yourself if you are your father's secret. And the title of this book gave a polite, honorable way to describe that situation. That's really lovely, isn't it? And that must, that must feel so great to have correspondence like that coming back to you? I must say that for much of my career before An American Marriage, I felt that my books were read by a very small group of people, but the book seemed to find their way to people who needed them. And those types of letters, that to me in my mind, those people were always my audience and they didn't decide prizes. They could not award grants, but they gave my work meaning for me. Mm. Yeah. And when you were asking strangers on the train or when you were you know in a cafe or something did did any of their suggestions get close to becoming the title no my favorite was my dad my dad said i have an idea i said oh what what is it daddy said you should call this book what do you mean that's your daddy i said <laughs> daddy i don't think that has enough gravitas and then he was offended he said i bet it would sell some copies <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, thanks anyway, Dad, for the <laughs> for the suggestion that we're going to go somewhere else. <laughs> but it was, you know, right it then. was a, but it was a lot of fun doing this kind of stranger crowdsourcing and asking the people in my life because when you write a novel, it's a very solitary process. And in this, I had to throw open the doors and invite everyone in because we had two weeks to come up with a good title. Two oh, weeks. Gosh. Wow, that seems like a lot. Yeah, that's quite a lot of pressure. <laughs> but I look back on that as one of the most pleasurable moments of the process. Yeah. And, and I quite- was talking to people. To, I was living in New York. You know, New Yorkers don't even talk to people. And I was talking to everyone on the subway car. <laughs> that's a bit like London as well. We don't really talk to people. Really? No, it's, it's, New York and London are probably quite similar in that respect, I think. <laughs> One good thing, actually, that's maybe come out of this awful virus is that communities, in certainly in London, where, where I am, are, are getting a bit more involved with each other and neighbours are talking to each other and people are actually, you know, helping each other. So that's one... I'm, st- I'm trying to put a positive in here to the current situation, you know. It's true. I've even seen that here. Um, I live down south in Atlanta, and we are pretty friendly in the south, but I've noticed that my neighbors are more more neighborly. It's been a good experience. I hope that when this is over that we carry that on. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm hoping that's going to be one of the things that we take away from this when it's all said and done. Um, Maggie, you ever had a, a two-week deadline on a title or a title that's never, that just hasn't worked? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I always leave um, the titles right to the last minute, actually, because I think, I don't know, I've always thought it's a bit like having a baby in a sense. You know, <laughs> I, I've, always been, I've always been slightly freaked out by those people who are pregnant and they say, this, my baby's going to be called Bethany or Anthony, you know, and I always think, well, how yeah. do you know? What if they don't look like a Bethany or an Anthony? And so I feel, I feel that you can only, only when your book is finished right at the end, do you know what it is you've done, what it is you're trying to say in a way. So I always leave it, so, which I think is quite stressful for my publishers who want to make things like catalogues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine they're, they're probably, in terms of the marketing side of the book, they're probably quite yeah. keen for a title, aren't they? Yeah. I think I think it's a bit of a challenge for them, Paul thanks. <laughs> um, a, a couple more questions before we do the book off, if I may, um, and we'll find out what books you're going to be pitching um, very shortly. But we were talking about Dana and Cherise Tayari, or you mentioned Dana anyway. These are the main characters of, of your novel. Um, and this is a relationship that's that's destined to explode from the beginning, right? So did you did you know going in to write this book that that was the case? I never know what the people are going to do before they do it. Um, mm. For me, the writing is a discovery process. So the first half of the book is written from the point of view of the secret daughter. And I thought the whole book was going to be her story. But at some point, I hit a wall where I had exhausted everything that she could share with me because she doesn't know what goes on inside her father's other house. And I was dying to know what they were doing over there. So I started writing from the point of view of the daughter who, up until now, understands herself to have an ordinary life. And then she met a girl. She made a friend. And that friend, unbeknownst to her, is her sister. And I was with bated breath. There were times when I had to get up and walk out of the room. The tension was so high. I was like, what is going to happen? Nothing good. But I just, you know, I just powered through to the end. 
Um, this book has been published already in, in the US and you were mentioning that you got quite a lot of correspondence about it. Um, but readers in the UK are just discovering it. It's just come out um, at the time of recording this. So how does it feel to be finding a new audience with this book that, that you might consider as being an old book for you? You know, this book is the one that is closest to my heart because it's the closest to me um, autobiographically of anything I've written. And I think it's a conversation that needs to be had, and it's a universal conversation. So it should be had, you know, as far and as wide as we can. So I'm delighted that this book has come to the UK. So I'm just, it doesn't feel old. To, it never feels old to me. Even mm. though An American Marriage is the book for which I'm most known, I feel that Silver Sparrow is the book that knows me. Oh, that's good. That's, it's, you should be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie, very briefly, just another point on Hamlet, if I may. Am I right in thinking, whether consciously or subconsciously, that you've sort of woven Shakespearean themes into this novel? Because that's yes. how clever you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But yes, I have. But very, I was, I'm hoping, actually, that they're done with a very, very, very light touch and that you might see them or you may not see them. I didn't well, I just to, think well, I'm I, very clever too and I've picked well, up that's, them. Well, that must be it, Joe. That must be it. Um, <laughs> only you have seen them. <laughs> I, you know, I think the last thing I wanted to do with this book, firthly, was to I have a friend who's very uh, forthright and she said to me, whatever you do, you're not allowed to use the word privy in this book. Um, so I really didn't want to do any kind of cod Elizabethan dialogue, but I also didn't want to do any kind of terrible clunking, this is where he got the idea from, you know, because of that, oh, that gives me slight shudders, you know, down my back. But so there are, I hope they're very, very almost invisible, but they're there if you want to look for them. They are subtle. Oh, I I'm glad. Just, I, I just, whilst reading, you know, picked up a couple of little things. I thought, oh, she's very clever, very good. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to check that, that you know, you that was something you just nestled away there in the prose. They are, um, but, they're, but, they're, but they're hidden in plain sight, I hope. Hidden in plain sight, very much so, yeah. Um, I loved both of these novels, as I said, um, and thank you both for, for joining me to talk about them. I, I just think they're absolutely fantastic. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Um, I'd like to now move on to the book off, if I may, which is where each of you is going to get three minutes to tell us about a book that you love uh, and that you think everyone should read. Very conscious never to say a favourite book, because if someone asked me that, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't ever say a title or if I did on the day it would change probably the next day so this is just a book that you love that we think everyone should read um and the way it works is that one of you goes first the other goes second you each get three minutes as I said you don't have to use those three minutes if you don't want to but when you get to the end of those three I'm either gonna honk you out or I'm gonna give you a a bell uh, to let you know your timing's up and we're going to cut you down in your prime. So um, we're going to find out... <laughs> sounds a bit... <laughs> didn't, didn't mean that to sound quite as threatening as it is. Um, so we're going to find out which books, first of all, that you're putting forward. Maggie, what are you going for in the book? I am going... Well, it's a slight cheat because I'm going for Jane Gardam's book, Old Filth, but it is the first one of a trilogy, just saying. So it's the, the option is there to read the others. Oh, I see what you've done there. Uh, and that's Sorry. An, uh, so that's a novel from 2004. Yeah. Um, and Tayari, what about you? What are you putting forward? I am putting forward a novel called The Street by Anne Petrie, which has just been reissued. Oh, from mm. the 40s? I believe it was published in the 40s, first of all, was it? After the yes, Second it was world published war? in the 40s, and it's just um, been re-released in the UK last month. Right. Oh, this is very timely. Okay, so now we need to decide who's going to go first and who's going to go second. So, Tyari, what would you, what would you like to do? I would like to go last, please. Second. <laughs> We, that means uh, Maggie gets to go, <laughs> I go first. Last. But I tell you what, though, Maggie, you get the better mm-hmm. of the two options because you get to choose whether you'd like the horn or you'd like the bell to ring you out. Which would you prefer? Uh, not the horn. Really not yeah. keen on that. That's good. That really made me jump. <laughs> the bell would be better. Yeah, sorry so, about that. When you can't no, see it, you do. Very like school. It's good. The, the yes. school bell is, you know, it takes me the back. The school bell. Well, yeah. that is, uh, we're going to put three minutes on the clock now and that school bell will ring you out at the stroke of three if you want to use it all. So it's Perfect. over to you then, Maggie, to tell us about Old Filth by Jane Gardam. So I, this is a book that I have just read and it's one of those books that I have been kicking myself now because I think I could have read this in 2004 and then I could have read it almost every couple of years since then and I, I feel furious with myself for waiting so long. Um, it is, as I said, the first of a trilogy which is often called the, the Old Filth Trilogy and it's one of those books, it's a huge sweep. It starts at someone's birth and it goes right along till his death almost. Um, so, it's, so it has a kind of macro scale but also on the micro scale what Jane Gardam is absolutely brilliant brilliant at is uh, unpacking the tiny, tiny, minuscule details of the interrelationships between people. Um, and if you haven't read it yet, like me, it's so exciting to read the first of a trilogy and absolutely be swept away by it because you realise that you've got this whole, you've got two other books, it doesn't end at the end of these pages. So it begins um, with we first see Old Filth, who is a retired QC lawyer, very, very, who has been a very brilliant and successful lawyer, and he's retired in Dorset with his wife, Betty. And Jane Gardam has the most extraordinary relationship to chronology. And so the book flips back and forth uh, throughout the whole span of Filth's life. And we first see him, and he is what's called a Raj orphan. So he's a child, and he's sent home. He's basically ripped from the arms of his um, uh, sort of uh, his ayah in Malaysia um, in the tw- um, what is it? No, it after this, but after the war in the forties, he's ripped from her arms. He's, he, she is the only mother he's ever known, and he is sent with a total stranger 
across the world to what they call home, which is, of course, uh, Britain. Um, and I'm quite a lot of the novel focuses on these children who are the sort of, you know, the sort of this terrible sort of uh, victims of this crumbling British empire at this stage, and they're all sent home. Of course, it's a home they've never known. Um, and also, I mean, really what I should also say is that the, the book also unpacks his relationships with two people, one of whom is his wife, Betty, and the other is his arch rival um, called Veneering, uh, another lawyer who's been lived in Hong Kong, like Phil has, and they really hate each other. And there are these satellite characters around them um, various cousins and friends. Um, there's also a very mysterious figure who's called Albert uh, Ross. Uh, you can see he's called Albatross. Uh, and he's a sort of almost supernatural sort of friend and presence in Phil's life. Um, so so it is polyphonic. Um, Jane Gardam goes in and out of Phil's head and in and out of the other character's head. Um, but really it centres around this central triangle between these three people. And it probably isn't too much of a spoiler to say that it is a bit of a love triangle because Betty and Veneering have a past, unfortunately. Uh, fortunately for Phil, I should say. Um, I mean, also, the, the thing I, I should say is that um, it's about the sort of hurts and the love you receive as a child and how those play out for the rest of your life, how they form and inform the kind of adult you become. And you think, actually, with a trilogy, what, one of the things I particularly find intriguing about it... Oh, oh and there's the school bell. Oh, at your only three just, minutes. I'm just... I'm barely, barely scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you did so well. There was so much in that already, I think. You're a um, very strict teacher, Mr. Haddon. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the game. Um, I, I feel like you had another three minutes in you there. You, it, three I, hours. You know. I could have gone on and on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can you can rest, you can relax now, and we're going to return okay, to talk. I'm going to listen uh, in now to Anthony. <laughs> Tayari, I've put three minutes on the clock for you now. Um, so it's over to you to tell us about The Street by Anne Petrie. Okay. The, the Street is a novel that was published in the 1940s by a black American woman, and it sold 1.4 million copies in, 19, I think, 1943 or 1944. It was unheard of. It was a blockbuster. And it has since kind of fallen off the radar of books that people read. It's been recently reissued, so I read it again to write a forward for it. And I was just struck by how timely it is. It's a story about a young woman who is a single mother because she she lost her husband. She was working as a maid. And so she was living at the people's house, you know, that she worked for. And as she said, I was so busy cleaning these people's house, cooking their food, taking care of their kids that I let my own marriage go to pot. So her husband cheats on her and she packs up with her son and she goes and moves to Harlem for a new life. And this is not like the kind of glitzy Harlem where people were, you know, still wearing like flapper dresses and what have you. This is Harlem when it was considered to be just so much urban blight. But she goes there with her son. She lives um, in this apartment building and all these terrible things kind of happen to her. She wants to be a singer and there's a nightclub and she's invited to come sing, but the nightclub owner wants her to be his mistress. And the bouncer has a thing for her, which puts him in conflict with her boss. Her upstairs neighbor is a madam who who feels like, oh, I can help you. I can help you make some money. Her little boy, he's so cute, but she doesn't have time to be the mother that she needs to be. So it's about work-life balance. It's about dreams. It's also about the things we would now call the Me Too movement, but from the point of view of a working class woman just trying to trying to make it. 
Of the many things that I love about this book is that it has stark social commentary about inequality, about gender, about race, but it's also a page turner. You cannot put this thing down. I cannot believe it was written in the 40s. And if you do any research on it, do an image search, you will see all the different covers it had because it's so multifaceted. Like on some of the covers, Ludi, that's the main character, is wearing like, looking like a bombshell in like a tight red dress with like a corset on. Others, she's looking like a respectable mother with her child. Others, it looks like a Black protest novel because it contains multitudes. This book is everything. Wowee. <laughs> you had, uh, you had, I, I just decided to do the horn anyway. You had 20 seconds to spare there, Tari. But uh, another fantastic pitch. Thank you very much for that. Um, well, you can relax now. I'm going back to Maggie to pick her brains on this book. Um, and it's a book or a trilogy I didn't know before you mentioned it. Um, mm-hmm. And the first thing that struck me was just how you you said, you obviously love it so much because you said, <laughs> you know, I would be je- I'm sort of jealous of someone who hasn't read it yet because not only yeah. do they get to read that, but then they finish it and know that there's two more books as well. There are two more. That's the great thing about it. Yeah, And, it's, and they're all as good as each other. I know we're only, only talking about one, but it's a strong yes, trilogy. Yes, actually, what's fascinating about it is because there are some sort of uh, sequels or trilogies where you sort of feel that the air is coming out of the balloon very, very gradually. But with this one, absolutely not. And what's what I think what I was about to say before you blew before you rang your uh, <laughs> school bell <laughs> is that you know you'd think with a trilogy that the second one would pick up where the first one left off, and you know the second where the third one picks up. But actually, it doesn't. What she does, which uh, interests me, I think she has a very interesting relationship with chronology, Jane Gardam. And what she does is instead is actually go right back to the beginning again, but does it from another person, another character's point of view. Mm-hmm. So not exclusively, but uh, the second book, The Man in the Wooden Hat, is basically Betty's book. So it it gives the story of the marriage and her life, but all from Betty's point of view. So you get this kind of long lens suddenly on Filth, who, of course, is the main character in the first one. And then the third one goes right back to the beginning and you get Veneering's take on on his, you know, you, you, you learn an awful lot about him, his childhood. Mm. Um, so it, it's absolutely fascinating because you'd think it doesn't carry on. It doesn't kind of go on with the next generation. It goes back and gives you, gives the microphone, hands the microphone to another character. Mm. Um, and it is incredible because you see these characters, you get to know them so intimately because you see them from the outside and also from the inside. And there's an awful lot, of course, that we hide from other people. And these, this Oldfield trilogy really goes into that. It, it talks about that. It, it really speaks to that dichotomy between what people carry on the inside and what they display on the outside. You've totally sold it to me, and I'm sure to oh, others good. as well. Um, and the the macro micro thing, and everyone sort of loves a good love triangle, don't they? So it just it mm. sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, so thank you for bringing it to our attention for it's those my that pleasure. may may have not known it, like me. Um, and similarly, uh, I didn't know about Ludi Tayari, and I didn't know about the street. Tell me more, because I love I love that it this stat that it sold 1.4 million copies in the 40s, which surely is a record breaker or something, is it, for back then? Oh, yes. It was the first blockbuster by um, a black woman in the world. Mm. 1.4. I mean, that's a lot of copies now, but just think, the population was so... And this is only domestically that she sold these copies. And think, there was no Twitter, no Facebook. People (laughs) weren't doing direct mailings. This was all word of mouth. You obviously love this book from the 
first time you've read it and you've reread it again to write the forward and I think that really comes across and like you said it it sounds to me like it is timely because there's so many different themes to it and you know it's about a working class woman trying to make it and that could be 2020 couldn't it? It absolutely could. I mean there are questions of housing insecurity, there are issues of you know, sex work, but also this this desire to be respectable. But one of the parts about it that I think is so interesting is how it talks about the real lives of the people we hire to take care of our children, to clean our houses. We have this idea that these the people who do this work, they love our families like their own. But no, they have their own families. If a woman is staying at your home cleaning up and cooking for your family, her own family is going without a mother, without that Mm. dinner. Mm. And so it really raises really complex ethical questions. And that makes me think of, I don't know why, I think because recently I've seen a couple of films maybe that have had nannies portrayed in the films. And in each of those ones that I've watched, the mother sort of comes across badly as not knowing their child as much as, as the nanny does. And yet, you know, from the nanny's point of view, if they have children themselves, I wonder if they sometimes feel guilty because they know someone else's child maybe even more than their own. Absolutely. Like this is a very, this outsourcing human relationships is incredibly complex and it's a very old conflict, but it hasn't been spoken about in frank, honest ways. And that's one of the big things that this book takes us through. I mean, The Street, like I said, it's a novel about everything. It is book club gold, and you cannot Hmm. put it down. And just say that last line for me again, Terry. You can't put it down. You cannot put it down. You will not put it down. You will not want (laughs) to put it down. (laughs) That sounded like a threat. You will not put it down. You will read it to the end. You will will read this book to the end because it will improve you. Uh, Oh, dear. I mean, wow. Uh, That was The Street by Anne Petrie we were talking about and Maggie was pitching Old Filth by Jane Gardham, just in case you missed those titles. Uh, I just love... Both of those, the sound of both of those, I want to read them both immediately. And do you know what? In this time, I usually have to pick a winner right now and say, you know, which one I'm going to take home. I feel like in this time of isolation and what's going on in the world, I'm going to take them both home and call it a draw. Is that all right with you? I think that's Perfect. a great idea. Yeah, OK, so there we go. So that is, that is considered a draw, also also known as a cop-out from my point of view. Um, but honestly, I thought, I just, I can't decide between those two. They sound fantastic and so different, both so different as well, which is, mm. which is so great. Um, before we wrap up, uh, I just want to find out what you're working on next. I know that's a difficult question when you're just publishing a new book, which is the one we're talking about. But um, Maggie, in this time of isolation, is that a good thing for a writer or have you got too many distractions going on? Well, it sounds like it sounds like a good thing, but actually, I, instead of being at home working on my own, <laughs> I had three kids <laughs> rattling about the house, <laughs> needing help with decimals, homework, and yeah. So actually, instead, you know, I, I keep reading all these articles about what to do with all the spare time you now have, and I, I'm finding the opposite. <laughs> I don't have any time at all, but I have decided that in our homeschool timetable, we are going to have reading books quietly for an hour at <gasps> least uh, once a day. 
Yeah. Yes, that uh, sounds so, like no, a very good plan. So no, there's not a lot of time, plan. but I'm putting the finishing touches to a children's book, which is coming out later in the year. So it's something that's something oh, really wonderful. nice to look forward to, to at the time when uh, hopefully all this uh, grim uh, t- experience will have been got through. And so the illustrator is illustrating it right now. Uh, oh. So every now and again, I'm getting these beautiful watercolors appearing in my email, uh, which is so nice to to get. Oh, at the that's moment. a lovely thing. What a lovely yeah. thing to get at this time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot of pressure being sort of put on everyone that this time now because we're all meant to be staying indoors it it, it should be you know it's somehow a very creative time and I just think that's that's not the case and actually no one should be thinking or stressing about having to write or you know do whatever it is Mm. that they've been meaning to do because it's not not necessarily the right time to be forcing yourself into doing those things really so whether you're an author, uh, whether you're, you've got a big art project or something that you've been thinking of doing for a long time, even if you've been thinking about putting that painting up, you know, I, don't, I just think there's a lot of pressure to do it and I would say don't feel like you have to. It's okay. Mm. <laughs> Tayari, what about you? Um, are you working on a new book? You know, I've been working on shorter pieces. I'm writing some um short stories, longish short stories that are going to be only available on audio. I've just Mm. finished one. It's called Mm. Natural Light and it'll be um, an Audible. Do you know the company Audible? It's going to be an Audible original. And I've never never worked with the idea of writing something for sound. So I'm really excited about that one. I've just finished one and I'm about to start another one. Wow. So that's Natural Light. We'll be able to hear that soon. Yes, you will. I'm so excited about it. I'm actually kind of into it. <laughs> well, audio is a great medium, as we all know. Um, <laughs> here, here. We, we'll be looking out for that, and we'll be looking out for your children's book, Maggie. I can't wait to uh, to read that and see these wonderful illustrations that you're talking about. And uh, thank you both for coming on and talking about your fabulous new novels. That's Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is out now on Tinder Press, and Silver Sparrow by Tayari Jones, which is also out now published by one world and if you've enjoyed the podcast today please do rate and subscribe and share with your bookish friends it would be so appreciated i hope everything goes well with audible uh tyree i i think well, uh, thank you short pieces and audio books and audio you know i'm i'm big into that so uh yeah, yeah that sounds the intriguing the idea of writing something for sound is it, it must feel very different from writing for the page it it is really different and it's a, it's less pressure really because there isn't that same feeling of, you know, when you write on the page, there's more scrutiny to each word mm. or the way you punctuate or all this. This mm-hmm. An actor will do so much of the work of this piece also. And do you have you a should read it. You've got a great voice. No, they won't. They don't like, you know, they don't like authors to do their own fiction because they feel like you won't take direction. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I can, I can like, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that could be tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie, Tari, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and uh, stay well and safe. And you, thank thanks you so, so much, much Joe. And very nice to talk to you, Tari. Likewise.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.